Okay, we need to talk. I had trouble writing this introduction. No, not because I didn't know what to say, that's hardly ever an issue for me, but because the conversation with Adrian Zabolt always takes deliciously unexpected turns. Adrian is one of the most brilliant, interesting and open-minded person I know. It turns out he's courageous too. Although he's not a fan of public speaking, he accepted my invitation on this show and I'm really glad he did. Adrian studied math and bioinformatics in Germany and now lives in the US, where he enjoys doing math, baking bread, and hiking. We talked about the why and the how of his new project, NumPy, which is a more efficient implementation of the Nuts sampler that he wrote in the programming language called Rust. And of course, this project marries very well with PyMC from the get-go because Adrian is a fellow PyMC developer. What else? We also dived deep into the new zero-sum normal distribution that Adrian created and that's already available from PyMC 4.2 onwards. We'll see what it is, why you would use it, and when. Adrian will also tell us about his favorite type of models, as well as what he currently sees as the biggest hurdles in the Bayesian workflow we all love. Honestly, each time I talk with Adrian, I learn a lot and I'm filled with enthusiasm. And now, I hope you will too. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 74, recorded November 4, 2022. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, for any info about the podcast, learnbasedstats.com is la place to be. Show notes, becoming a corporate sponsor, supporting LBS on Patreon, unlocking Bayesian merch, everything is in there. That's learnbasedstats.com. If with all that info, a Bayesian model is still resisting you, or if you find my voice especially smooth and want me to come and teach Bayesian stats in your company, then reach out at alex.endora at pymc-labs.io or book a call with me at learnbaystats.com. Thanks a lot, folks, and best Bayesian wishes to you all. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen. Maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming how would i know unless i'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like i'm richard Feynman. hello my dear Bayesians. before we go on with the show i'd like to warmly thank andreas kruppelin who just joined the lbs patreon in the full posterior tier your support makes a big difference for instance it helped me pay for the new mic i'm using right now to record these words so may the bays be with you andreas Oh, and if you want to stay connected with your favorite podcast, LBS Now has its own Twitter account and LinkedIn page. Both are at LearnBaseStats. But if you don't like mystery, the links are in the show notes. Now, let's hear from Adrian. Adrian Zabolt, welcome to Learning Patient Statistics. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. 
I'm super happy. So we're not going to continue in German <laughs> because, well, I wanted to, but I don't know why uh, Adrian told me that he has to train his, his practice, his, his English. So that's really a shame. <laughs> yeah, like that's how it goes. <laughs> no, it's not true. It's my German is way too rusty. So yeah, let's continue in English. But yeah, I'm super happy to have you here because I've known you for a while now and you've done so many things that it was hard actually to pick the questions I wanted to, to ask you for the podcast because you've done so many projects and I had so many yeah, exciting questions for you. So I'm happy that you're finally on the show. But I guess I was a bit shy. So, <laughs> But Alex worked hard to get me here. So <laughs> That's among my superpowers that people should not know. Yeah, I just... I'm relentless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, but let's start, you know, easy. And as usual, I like to start with uh, the background of the guests. And so let's start with your origin story. I'm curious how you came to the stats in data worlds and whether it was more of a sinuous or a straight path. Definitely not a straight path. So mm -hmm. I was always really interested in mathematics. And that's also what I started studying at university. And at that time, I never would have dreamed that, that I end up doing statistics. That's just not what I re really was interested in. Yeah. I guess I was somewhat interested in the philosophical part of statistics, like what are what is the probability and the whole debate of frequent statistics versus Bayesian statistics, that, that did interest me a little bit, I guess. But that was more side interest and just something I, I was curious about, not really something I was, wanted to work on. But say, during the first part of mathematics at university, I learned probability theory, measure theory, and things like that, that I guess come in handy now, but nothing at all about applying probability theory in, in any sense. So what, what I would call statistics. That came later. So after, after some time at university, I switched to doing mathematics, I switched to bioinformatics, because I wanted to have more applied content in, in, in what I do. And their statistics really did become more important. And at, yeah, at some point I just started, I, I don't really know why I started looking into that more. I think it came up in a couple of projects I was working on and I was just curious. So I actually learned Stan at the beginning, mm -hmm. which was a lot of fun. And, but I was also into Python quite a lot. So I started looking into PyMC and PyMC didn't do a couple of things that Stan could. And I was, yeah, wanted to use Python. So I started contributing to PyMC, actually doing mass matrix adaptation things. I think it was pretty much the first, first, well, it, definitely among the first pull requests I did. I think 2018 or some, something around, some, sometime around that. I became a core contributor then to PyMC at some point and continued doing that till now, I guess, and just, continued doing statistics, and now I work at PyMC Labs together with Alex, where we develop statistical models. Exactly, yeah, yeah. We have a lot of fun. <laughs> We're going to talk about, about uh, like more of that later, but okay, actually, I, I didn't know you started with Stan, and, and then, well, like, <laughs> that is so typical of you. Oh, I'm going <laughs> to start the mass matrix adaptation. <laughs> like, so I want to I wanna be clear to listeners, you don't need to do a new mass matrix adaptation for your first PR into PyMC. <laughs> but but that would be the outcome. I think there's still, still a lot of potential for improving, for improvement in that sure. area. So if you want to do that as your first PR, please go ahead. That's, that's always sure. great. Yeah. 
if you want to, but uh, don't be intimidated. You don't need to. I think my first PR was probably a typo somewhere. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, so. I'm, not, I'm not sure it actually was my first PR, to be honest. Among the first, and the, the first one I remember, I, I don't know if it actually was the first. It's too late now. That's too much. Okay, like, so that's you know, the story. Drop the bomb. Yeah. Okay. You know how the news works, right? Okay, yeah, it's like okay. now it's going to be on CNN and like you're, you're done. Like it's going to be. Can't change that anymore. It's out now. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Like now to change it, it's too many details and nobody likes details. So no, yeah, that's all. Okay, but okay, I see. So you started with the pure math world and then or was drawn into the, into the dark force of statistics. <laughs> yeah, it's just this. I wanted to do applications and as soon as you start working on application statistics, pretty much in, I, yeah, probably not every field, but in really a lot of fields, but just pops up at some point. And if you're already yeah. a bit of interested in the philosoph philosophical part of it, then I think that that's easy to draw you in. Yeah, no, for sure. And actually, like, how do you find statistics to people? I guess, how do you explain your job, you know, because I always <laughs> have a hard time. Like, this is not math, but it's related to math because you use numbers all the time. Yeah, it's sure. not software development because, well, you use numbers and, and math, and so it's not just developing programs. So, like, how actually do you define statistics in, in like, yeah, comparison to math? Interesting question. So I think, so I, I guess probability theory for me really is math. So that's mm. where you just say probabilities have these properties. And you don't say what a probability is. You just say what properties something should have for it to be called a probability. Mm -hmm. Then you just prove theorems based on those assumptions, on those properties. And you don't really... I mean, maybe you think about that, but the, the subject in, in the mathematical world really isn't how to, uh, do I apply that to a real world problem, but it's just what does just automatically follow from those, from those properties. And I'd call that probability theory. And statistics would for me then be if you start applying probability theory, mostly that, I guess, to a real world problem to model uncertainty, frequencies, how often something happens. I think kind of the core thing for me, at least, is really uncertainty quantification. So if we say mm -hmm. we want to know something and we also want to know how, how well we know, yeah. we can, turns out we can interpret that as a probability if we want. Mm -hmm. And then I guess you can have really philosophical discussions around what, what this probability actually means, which in practice, I think, I mean, it's interesting, but in practice, I think it's probably not always relevant because in the end, it's more yeah, how you apply it is also kind of a big topic, a big subject there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I see. I kind of agree. Like, would you place, to me, it rings a bell between, you know, the difference between math and physics? Yeah, like, I think that's... that's physics would, would try and, like, really care about what, how to explain the world and how things around us are happening and how it's possible and how certain we are about that. So would you place, like, if you had a Venn diagram, would you place physics and statistics at the same layer, in the same layer? Yeah, I think uh, maybe not exactly, because so physics really tries to explain how the, or describe how the world works around us, while statistics, I think, doesn't really, but it's more trying to quantify or tell what we know about it. So it's an, on a slightly different level, but I think kind of the relationship to mathematics is a, is a bit similar in that it's applying parts of mathematics to 
our knowledge of something or frequencies of something happening. So I guess in, in that case, it would might actually be really describing something directly in the real world and not just our knowledge of it. That, that again depends a bit on how you define probabilities, right? Mm, yeah, I see. Damn, so that, that got nerdy very quick. Oh, <laughs> 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 well, cool. Okay. Yeah, interesting. And so, yeah, basically, so you said you work now with us at labs and you're doing some fun statistical and mathematical projects. <laughs> and so, yeah, basically, can you also, can you tell us like the topics that you're particularly interested in these days? And so I know you like, you know, getting obsessed by some topics and projects. So yeah, maybe tell us about some of your latest obsessions and, and topics that you're particularly interested in these days. Okay, something I've been looking into a lot because, okay, in, in a lot of projects we had some, one problem came up repeatedly where we have a data set, we build a model that works really well with that data set, or hopefully really well, but then a client might apply that model to a different data set and suddenly things don't really work as well. Either because of really statistical problems and we didn't understand part of the data generating process and things are just different, or we can also just have computational issues because the parametrization that we found with the first data set works really well there, but it doesn't really work as well in a different data set. So I was interested in trying to make that the computational part of that more robust, which then got me actually a back to the mass matrix adaptation things, which <laughs> never really left me, I guess, that, that stayed around. And so trying to find better algorithms to approximate the posterior so that sampler ma sampling methods can be more robust. So that's definitely something I've, I've been thinking about quite a lot recently. Then I guess you mentioned that in, that you might want to talk about that, the zero-sum normal question, yeah. which mm -hmm. is... In essence, I think a bit a question about how we want to write regression models or hierarchical regression mm -hmm. models, partially pooled, whatever you want to call them. Yeah. How to write, write those so that they end up being fast for the sampler, but also easy to interpret. And I think there are think, still some, some open questions there. I think we can improve. Also priors for standard deviations, which is kind of an internal subject, I guess, that never really goes away. Yeah. True, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember you posting something very interesting about the priors for standard deviations in in our Discord on BMC Labs. Uh yeah, yeah. It's like this kind of thought experiment about like basically trying to set the standard deviation on the whole like on the whole data set. Well, yeah, on the whole data set instead of one parameter at a time. And then you could just trickle like do a domino effect on what that means for the individual parameters. So the basic idea would be to ask how much variance do we have in total in the model and say we yeah. might, may, might want to have that as a parameter in some sense. Yeah. How we parameterize that is then, I guess, a bit of a different question. And then we ask how much of that variance comes from various sources. And that way, if we increase the number of predictors, for instance, the total variance doesn't grow larger and larger each time we add a, add a predictor, which I think doesn't really make sense. That shouldn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And also, it makes it's easier to set the priors because it's true that it's always like, yeah, I don't, I don't know how to set the prior on that slope, you know. Yeah. It's just like 
what does that mean? Whereas having a total variance for the whole phenomenon you're explaining is more, yeah, more intuitive. And then it's kind of how do you automate the trickle down effect on the individual parameters? Well, it, I, I don't think I really have that worked out in any sense yet. But what was you pretty don't? nice is no, no, I don't. What I definitely liked was when I kind of had this whole different approach of, okay, trying to find out which parameters, do, how we, do we want to set the price? Then I yeah. looked at that for a while and worked with it. And after some time, I realized, oh, this is actually equivalent to setting half normal price on the variance, which is uh, on the standard deviation, which is our default, <laughs> what we do all the time. <laughs> it was kind of a bummer on one hand, because I thought, okay, I invented this great new thing. Then it turns out to be, oh, well, just same, same off. But <laughs> also... I guess in a sense, I also like that because maybe that points to that maybe that was actually not not such a bad idea. But yeah, let's see, Let, let's see how that works out. Yeah. Uh, do you do you have any like Are you testing that approach already on any project? No, no. I tested that a bit on kind of artificial data sets where I played mm -hmm. around with it a bit, and I think that would just be the natural next step now to do that yeah. in a couple of real projects and, and just compare first how does it actually do something different? Does it make more sense? Does it actually make it easier to set the priors? Or maybe it, it doesn't, I don't know. So yeah. we have to experiment with that a bit. Yeah, that'd be that'd be very interesting. Yeah, I have some projects in mind there where we're trying it. As usual, the problem is like <laughs> the time. It's the time. But uh, yeah, like, I mean, that, that'd be definitely super fun. Cool. Okay, so yeah, like Actually, before we, we dive into the, those different topics, I'm, I'm wondering if you remember how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods. Because, like, yeah, basically you got introduced more to stats during doing bioinformatics. So I'm guessing it happened at that time, but like, did it or was it actually later? That definitely happened in stages. So, so I remember definitely having discussions around Bayesian stats with friends in first year at, at university, I think. Mm -hmm. That was more like I'd read something or friends read something and we just talked for, about it for a bit. But nobody really did anything with Bayesian stats then. I think the first time I really did that was near the end, really worked, use, used Bayesian statistics to do anything was ne relatively near the end of my time at university, I think. Using it to model RNA counts, for instance. So if you have... Actually, pretty large data sets, and I think actually pretty complicated, not, not that complicated models, but with, with horseshoe priors, I kind of went all in and did all the things that, that actually pretty difficult to sample correctly, mm -hmm. where it's really hard to avoid getting divergences and making sure you actually sample from the posterior. So it didn't, didn't start easy that way, I guess. Okay, and that's when you started with Stan, I guess. Yeah. Mm, okay, nice. I see. And so, but, and then you stick to it because like it was mainly appropriate methods for the, the kind of, of problems you were dealing with? I mean, and I'm talking about Bayesian stats here, not, not stats. I think maybe a bit also kind of the usual thing that if you learn the tools and the, the methods of working in, in, in one framework, then you, you tend to use that for the next problem that comes, comes around, yeah. which I don't think is necessarily a good thing, but it's also not mm -hmm. necessarily a bad thing. So, I, yeah, I don't know. I think that's definitely part of it. And then you also... I think you notice the problems more where you could use those those methods, and you kind of gravitate yeah. to to one to one yeah, set of problems. Whole, like yeah, yeah, 
if you have a hammer, you, <laughs> yeah. you're going to see all the problems as, as nails. Or, or you, you'll just, just find nails everywhere. Find nails. Just yeah. ignore the screws that are around as well. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Screw those screws. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, okay, I see. Okay, actually, let's dive into the, the first product you talked about, like, so with actually mass matrix adaptation, <laughs> if I understood correctly. It's called NutPy. And yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. Like, what can you tell us about NutPy, basically? Give us the elevator pitch and then, and then we'll dig into it. Yeah, sure. So that also started more as a small hobby thing I wanted to try out. I just thought, hey, it would be fun. Rust is a fun language. Mm-hmm. Always liked it. Why not, why not write nuts? Hamiltonian Markov chain Monte Carlo methods in in Rust and see how that goes. So I did that some time ago with a really basic implementation and was sitting around for a while. At some point, then we had discussions in the Isara backend, which we used to compute log p graphs that we could compile that to number, so we can just get out a plain C function that doesn't have any any Python in it anymore. And I thought, well, maybe it would be interesting to see if we can't use that Rust implementation I, I had around to then call that. But in order to do that, I had to develop, to make that actually real, I had to, to develop the, the Rust implementation quite a bit. And I also worked in a couple of new ideas for mass matrix adaptation. So there's actually pretty simple change we can do to mass matrix adaptation to use the gradients as well as the draws. So we just use a bit of additional information and the method looks really similar, but in all my experiments, it seems like it's actually working quite a bit better. So especially early in tuning, uh, we can get to a good, good mass matrix and I think to, to the posterior where, where we want to get with quite a with fewer gradient evaluations. Not orders of magnitude fewer, but definitely fewer. fewer. And seems also so, so far pretty stable, more stable and robust actually than, than the default in, in my experiments. So never, never trust the author of something like that for something like that, I guess. So do your own experiments. But so, and now I think it developed, so, but by now I think it's a pretty stable library actually. A relatively small library written in Rust implements just the basic Hamiltonian Markov chain Monte Carlo sampler. And you can actually use that to sample Stan or PyMC models, both with little asterisks in there that because for Stan, you have to use a different branch of HTTP Stan so that we can actually get at, at the gradient function easily. And for PyMC, that works out of the box and I think much nicer. So you can just install NutPy using Conda or Mamba or whatever and just call two functions to sample using NutPy. But that requires the new number backend for Isara, which is still a bit of a work in progress. So depending on your models, it might work really well, or you might just get an error message if you're unlucky. In that case, if you do, and if you try it, please open an issue, that would that would be great. So I kind of know where that stands. But the library yeah, itself, well, I think, is pretty stable by now. So just mm-hmm. getting the gradient functions, that's actually tricky part. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, yeah. So if people want to try it out, it's in like it's downloadable from PyPI and also Conda, right? I, I think I actually not, not I, PyPI yet. I think oh, that just should Conda. be actually should actually be pretty easy to add by but it's just haven't done that yet. So yeah, uh, yeah. Conda. Yeah. So yeah I, I yeah I think that's how I installed it. I think I installed it with, with Mamba. So yeah, Mamba install 
not buy, and then you have it, uh, and you can try. And yeah, we'll put a link to the to the GitHub repo in the show notes, so that well people can can look at the the examples you are talking about. How do you sample the PyMC model or stand model? Thanks to that, and then yeah, if you find some issues, for sure, open the issues on the on the repo, guys, because it helps well, make make the the library better for everybody. And that's the the P try. It's library written in Rust that implements HMC nuts. So like, which is the most robust algorithm we have right now to do MCMC. That's already what we're using PyMC. That's what's used in Stan. And the last twist is that you used new mass matrix adaptation in this implementation of HMC. Exactly. Did yeah. I get that right? Yeah. So let's dig a bit into that. Can you first, can you remind listeners what the mass matrix adaptation is and why would we care about that when we are sampling a Bayesian model? Okay. Yeah, sure. So I think most people who work using, who have actually played with Bayesian models and try to sample those with HMC noticed that sometimes you can rewrite your model a tiny bit so that it does the exactly, exactly the same thing. But somehow in one version, it samples really fast and in a different version, it samples really slow. Or in one version, you get divergences and in, so it doesn't really work actually. And in a different version, it works just fine. So that's always the question of parametrizations. So the model might actually be the same, but the numbers you just use to describe that model are different. And so sometimes and some parametrizations are good for the sampler and some are bad for the sampler. Now, we try all, always when we implement HMC pretty much to do some of those reparametrizations automatically. Namely, we rescale all parameters. So you could just say, I sample standard normal and scale that by the standard deviation. Or I just, yeah, so each parameter you have in your model, you could just multiply by some value as parameter and then divide by that value again when you use it. And that would be the same model as before. But yeah. that, might turn out to have really different performance for the for the sampler. Yeah. And so for instance, like a, a positive parameter, a standard deviation that has a half normal prior, actually it's sampled on the log scale so that we like we transform it on the log scale so that we sample on the real on the real line. Right? It's not sampled on the on the positive. And then you try to find you rescale all those transformed variables so that they're posterior usually that's kind of the usual way of doing it so that the posterior standard deviation is one, so that all of those have the same, same, same variance. So you mean all the parameters in the, in the model? Yeah. And so just rescaling all, each individual parameter so that it has posterior standard deviation one, that's usually what we refer then to as diagonal mass matrix adaptation. Mm -hmm. And non-diagonal mass matrix adaptation would then be something where we actually do a linear transformation of all those individual parameters. And to be clear, you do that, you do, we do that only during the sampling, but then the posterior you get back from PyMC or Stan is then rescaled. Yeah. Yeah. So that's completely hidden. You don't notice when you use the library that happens automatically in the background and you, you don't need to, to worry about it if you just, just use the, the library. But during sampling, that's really important because the sampler will have really bad performance if one posterior standard deviation, for instance, is 10 to the minus two and another posterior standard deviation is maybe a thousand. 
then it just will, will be horribly slow. So we need to avoid that. And the usual way of doing that is just to try and sample a little bit. So and until you get a sense of how large the posterior standard deviation is, and then you rescale everything to fit, to fit that. Then you sample a bit more to get a better idea what the actual posterior standard deviation is, and you rescale again. And you iterate that a couple of times until you, you find something that, that you actually like and, and think yeah. works well. And that's mostly what's happening during tuning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what that, I was that's the warm, that warm part, part is the yeah, that's the warm up or tuning phase that you like people have probably heard about. And then once you get to that phase where it's pretty much stable, then you you think that you've reached the typical set, and then you can start the sampling phase per se. That's the kind of samples that you get from you in your trace once the model has finished track. I mean, during warm-up also, or tuning, also a couple of other things are happening. So for instance, you are actually moving to the typical set. So because you might start somewhere that's just not in the, in the typical set at all, where you just don't want to be. So you need to move in the right direction first. And you need to find step sizes and, and, and the mass matrix. So I guess those are the three different things. But the mass matrix adaptation is really usually that which takes so long. So that's why you have a thousand samples or something before you actually start drawing the samples that you actually want. That's the whole reason why there's this first long section that often takes a long time. And we would like to reduce that and make it faster. And the basic idea then behind modifying that a bit is saying that, okay, maybe we actually have more information than just the posterior standard deviation. We also already for HMC, we computed the gradients of each log P value. And gradients and draws, they both provide information about how much variation there is for a certain variable. And it turns out if you use both, you can usually converge to something reasonable faster. And you can't always, and it's not just that you can converge to something faster, but the thing that you converge to might also be a bit different. And that tends to lead to better effective sample size per draw values. So it's, the tuning tends to happen faster, and after tuning, you get tend to get a better result, at least in all the experiments I did. But, I mean, maybe there was one or two models where it was a bit worse, but you get the idea. I see. Okay. Okay, that's very cool. So basically, you're using more information because you're using the gradient, and so that helps you arriving faster to the typical set and probably, most of the time, finding having a more precise idea of what the typical set actually is, yeah. or a more accurate idea, maybe not more precise. And I think the basic idea of how I derived that can also be extended to reparameterizations that are not just rescaling, but that are more complicated. So hopefully that can be developed in a way so that correlations in the posterior, for instance, are way less of a problem even for large models. So right now, you can do something called full mass matrix adaptation where you try to find a linear transformation of the parameter space that gets rid of all correlations. That doesn't really work if you have a large number of parameters. So if you have 5,000 parameters, that would be a 5,000 by 5,000 matrix. And working with that just is no fun. And it's also hard to estimate then. So it definitely seems like if you use the same math I used to derive the new diagonal mass matrix adaptation and apply it to full mass matrix adaptation or some something in between, actually, that also seems to work pretty well. 
but that's not enough pie yet. That's still experimental stuff I'm working on and hopefully works out well. But let's see. Mm, okay. Yeah. And then that would be uh, stuff that you like a new kind of adaptation that you would add to NutPy, for instance, and then that people could be able to use in, in normal. So there actually is already an implementation on GitHub somewhere, CoveAdapt, which actually works with the default PyMC sampler, not in not in NutPy. But that's more of an experimental implementation. And I think it works. So I don't think it's a completely experimental broken thing in a sense, but I wouldn't just, just use that in production if I... <laughs> Yeah, that, that doesn't probably sound like a good idea at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get. It. So, yeah. First, that reminds me. So you see, folks, that's why we tell you to not code your own samplers. <laughs> it's like you can see the whole, like the the amount of research and expertise and math and like collective wisdom and thoughts that go into all those samplers that you use through probabilistic programming languages. It's because it's like it's really hard work and extremely technical. Or so, you do implement your own samplers and just do that work, which is really a lot of fun. So that, that, sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> it's it, usually but, it's harder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely think so. If you're like me, I would recommend not doing that. <laughs> just use the samplers that smarter people than you say. Yeah, yeah. You should use that and like get rid of your sampler that you've written in Python. So yeah. Uh, first and um, second, okay. So thanks. That actually helped me understand what the mass matrix adaptation is because I always forget. So that's cool. And yeah, you also talked about the step size, etc. So of course I would have questions about that. But like a question I often get when I teach Bayesian stats is: so with you said that the sampler starts somewhere, and that very often is not in the typical set. Mm -hmm. So that's the init value, right? The initial value where the sampler starts. And for a moment, we see that less and less. So it seems that we've done a good job at communicating that. But for a long time, it was quite frequent that people would start the initialization, force PyMC, for instance, to start the initialization at the mean of the data or the maximum a posteriori of the parameter. Mm -hmm. And we told people to not do that. So can you, yeah, can you tell us why? It's uh, usually a bad idea to do that and usually leave that choice to PyMC or Stan. So I think one reason is definitely that I don't think it ever, or never used the word ever, but it typically yeah. doesn't really help. So it definitely adds an additional thing that needs to, be done. So you need to run optimization first. And I think so, for instance, I mean, in the literature, there's actually interesting ideas around that, of doing that. So Pathfinder, for instance, is, I think, a really interesting paper that, that tries to develop that idea. But if you just basically doesn't really help, and I think there are cases where it definitely can, can make things worse. So where if you just optimize naively, you might end up in a funnel somewhere, or you might end up somewhere. I mean, the gradient is zero at the mean by definition, or by, at the maximum a posteriori estimate, at least, by definition. So is that good for an initialization? I, I think not. So mostly, I think it's a why do that? Don't really see the point. It doesn't, doesn't help much. So I think maybe it did help actually with, so before the whole HMC thing came around, before the gradient-based methods, maybe it did actually help there. So that might actually be why it was a thing. 
But with agency, I mean, usually there might be models where that's different, but really usually if it's a well-defined model, you have the first, first couple of draws where the sampler just goes to the right spot. And after that, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. So. Yeah. I see. And another question that, that I get is like, why aren't the tuning sample, samples also given back by PyMC by default. You can get them, for instance, in PyMC. If you say, like, there is a, I think it's discard tuning samples <laughs> equals false. By default, it's true. But can you explain why in, it's not like most of the time you don't need those tuning samples and when would you need them? If you develop mass matrix adaptation methods, for instance, you definitely want to use them because then you can see what it's actually doing behind the, behind the scenes. Yeah. And that's definitely where you need them. But other than that, I mean, it's just an area where it tries to find good parameters and it's not trustworthy samples during that, during that period in a sense. So other than for diagnostic and trying to understand what's happening reasons, I don't really see what you would do with those draws. So they're there to find good parameters for the sampler. And after you found the parameters, you then sample. Yeah. They don't necessarily tell you anything about the inferences that your model make. Makes, right? It's like these samples are the posterior samples that you actually get from your PPL. That's what you care about if you want to see if your model is making good inferences. On. Cool. And so it's, I'm taking from what you're saying that basically if listeners are interested in NumPy, they basically can try it on any of their models, right? There, there shouldn't be any restrictions on the kind of models that you can, in theory, use NumPy on. The only, like, the main restriction was the one you mentioned, which is, well, sometimes an op would be missing in number, in which case open a, open an issue. But uh, in general, like, you can try not buy on any model. Yeah. I don't think there's, again, if you have cu custom ops and call into C code or something, which I like to do a lot, but I think 99% of people don't do that. So you're safe. <laughs> And if you do that, I think you know that you're not safe. So in that sense, go for it. Yeah. So if we de-zoom a bit, I'm actually curious about the any difficulties that you encountered with implementing NutPy and in general, what you learned from them, if you encountered any difficulties. Good question. I definitely encountered lots of small difficulties. So mm -hmm. fighting... Yeah, thinking about how to structure different parts of the library, it definitely the, the whole adaptation things, they, they tend to cut across concerns a bit. So they are a bit tricky to separate out in, in, a, in a nice and clean way, I think. But to be honest, it went surprisingly smoothly, I think. Mm. Probably it helped that I worked on the PyMC sampler before yeah. quite a bit. So that it wasn't the first NUTS implementation I ever did. Then, Definitely getting all the details right of nuts, that's that's always a bit tricky because there's a lot of small things you can do wrong and you they don't look wrong, they just are wrong. So you get incorrect results if you get mess something up or you get less efficient sampling but looks right. Mm -hmm. So they are definitely it's definitely a tricky thing to implement right, I think. Oh yeah. But I had I mean I was looking at the stand implementation, the PMC implementation a bit to compare and make sure things actually work the same way. So, yeah, that was actually really a lot of fun. And I really enjoyed working in Rust as well, which uh, is definitely the largest project I ever did in Rust. And uh, I really yeah. enjoyed that. Okay. Well, that's cool. I didn't expect that answer. 
<laughs> I thought you had a lot of banging your head against the walls. Oh yeah, yeah uh, definitely. Moments. I had banging my head against walls. I mean, but I think that's just a given for any any software project. To be honest. <laughs> And uh, listen. I don't have really this one thing that. Yeah, you didn't have like one big blog. No. And uh, I want to reassure the listeners because they don't have the video, but uh, your head looks mm, looks good now. It looks it looks like yeah, all the bumps from the thing in your head <laughs> against the walls seems to have disappeared. So yeah, they, they healed nicely. I'm I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh... yeah. Maybe that's also why that project was so fun because the bumps disappeared so fast. <laughs> That's good. Okay, before we switch to another project of yours, do you need any help actually on RustPy, on RustPy, on NutPy? And like, if yes, what can people help you with? So NutPy itself feels to me relatively finished. So if people have nice ideas, that that's always great. And I mean, you can definitely clean up code more. I think it's decent, I hope, but it's not like there's nothing left to do, but... It is a library that has relatively small scope. So implement this one algorithm and do it nicely, hopefully. So I don't think there's that much work to do on that library itself at this point. Unless somebody wants to add more samplers, that might be really interesting. SMC would be, I'd, I'd be glad, uh, yeah. glad about something like that. I guess where really a couple of things are where I could re really use help is the number backend. So making sure... So just testing testing the, the new mass matrix adaptation for once on different models and see if we can find something where it's worse, definitely worse than the old implementation. That would be interesting to see. Then just and from the implementation point of view, all the number ops that might be missing still, figure out which ones those actually are and implement them. And I think there's, and test them make sure they actually do the right thing as well, which would be, that would be nice. So that's definitely something where I think lots of people could, could help and which would be great. Good. And so the way to contact you about that is to go on the GitHub repo of NetPy? Yeah. So if you run it with a PyMC model and you notice, okay, this op doesn't work or the compiler throws an error message or something, just open an issue. It's simple as that. And uh, I'd be glad to look at that. Good. Okay. Cool. And um, yeah, actually, when you look at the examples on NetPy, on the GitHub repo, there is a comment on the PyMC model example that says that this distribution should be a center of normal. And <laughs> it's the perfect segue for the next topic. <laughs> because you know that uh, the Statistical Academy now calls that zero-sum normal. <laughs> Adrian? Okay, so I guess that would be a contribution, make yep. PR that uh, yep. <laughs> fixes that. <laughs> and especially since, like now, actually PM.ZeroSumNormal exists. So you can even use that in the in the example. Thanks to Alex, because I was... Yeah, too. well, yeah, thanks. It was really a collective endeavor. So Luciano Pass helped me a lot. And Ricardo Vieira, of course, as usual. I feel like Ricardo now is kind of... Um, you know, uh, extension of the PyMC repo. <laughs> <laughs> so, and um, yeah, so let's talk about that because zero sum normal. So yeah, I worked uh, on the PR uh, to merge it into into PyMC, but you're actually the the father of the distribution. So yeah, can you tell us how, like, what it is and how you came up with the idea? So first. 
I guess, about being the father of that distribution. I'm not actually, so I, I'm pretty sure I made that up on my own, in a sense. I mean, as on, on your own as you can. I'm not entirely sure, at all sure, I was the first person to make this up. So somebody else, I think definitely in the Stan, on the Stan Discord, there were people discussing very similar things. I think, yeah, so no clue who was first there in, in any way. Not, yeah, don't want to maybe it's that, like that, but, you um, know that uh, you know the story about Laplace, who rediscovered Bayes' formula, and <laughs> he thought he was the first one. If he was like super heavy, and uh, and then that and I think it's told, maybe actually a bit, bit, bit less important than that as well. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure. We'll see what history says, you know. But yeah, like Dalbert told him, oh, actually, like that has already been discovered. So yeah. He was quite sad about about that, you know. It was actually quite reassuring to me. A, a genius like Laplace could be sad sometimes and depressed, you know. That was inspiring <laughs> in its own way. <laughs> yeah, but okay. Anyways, so yeah, now that we've done the usual caveats, hey, can you tell us about like what that distribution is and how you yeah came up with the idea of basically the, the birth? Okay, so. From a mathematical point of view, it's actually a really simple distribution in some sense. It's just a multivariate normal distribution where one of the eigenvalues happens to be zero. So it's a weird covariance matrix. That's just a constant covariance matrix. In that sense, nothing special, move on. I guess where it came up, where, where I started to think about this, is in linear regressions, we always have, or it's well-known issue and with well-known solutions in a sense, where if you have discrete predictors, so you might have a model where you have an intercept plus something in each US state or so, and you might want to have a different parameter for each US state. You have too many parameters in a sense because you're... Over-parameterizing? Yeah, you're over-parameterizing your model. So you would like to get rid of one of the degrees of freedom. And how statisticians have often done this, and which is... And it's because, so I, I'm, I'm interrupting you, but yeah, it's over-parameterized because once you know the behavior of 49 states, states in that example, you would know the behavior of the 50th state without having to compute it. Yeah, I, I guess, so you have one parameter for each state and you have the intercept. So you have, yeah. how many states are there? Sorry? 50. 50, okay. But then you have 51 parameters. <laughs> so you have 50 states, so actually 50 output variables in a sense, but you have 51 parameters because you also have the intercept. And a normal way of dealing with that is to just drop one of those states in a sense and say that corresponding parameter is defined to be zero, so we'll just basically use the intercept value then for predictions there. Now, if you do that in a frequentist setting where you don't have any regularization, that's perfectly fine in the sense that it doesn't matter which state you choose. You get the, I mean, you get different numbers out of your model, but you get the same results. So the different numbers just mean it, mean something else, but no matter which state you choose, you get the same meaning for your results. This is not true, however, if you do it in a Bayesian model where you assume maybe that the values from the states come from a normal distribution, for instance, and suddenly it does matter which state you you drop. So you don't really want to drop a state like you do, you, like you tend to do in, in uh, frequentist regression, because then you introduce this weird, weird arbitrary choice that changes your results. I mean, in some settings that choice isn't arbitrary, so maybe one state is a control in a state that doesn't really make much sense. Yeah, but maybe for drug, no, but, um, 
Yeah, exactly. The con a placebo control, and yeah. that makes sense to define that as zero. So that's yeah. fine. But in other cases, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, and in a lot of cases, actually, you don't like because. So what you're talking about, I think, is called reference encoding or like yeah. yeah, reference categorical encoding, and like you use that also in multinomial regressions, where well, now that you have several categories, you need well, well, you need the usual way of not having the overparameterization, which comes with an identifying an identifiability of some parameters is to, as you were saying, take one of the categories as the reference or well, a pivot, also that's called a pivot. And so pivot encoding, reference encoding, that's like that's exactly what we're talking about. Taking one of the categories as the reference. And like a lot of times, it's quite hard to have a reference category in mind, like that really makes sense, unless it's really a placebo or something that really makes sense to like make reference to all the time. So, but this leads to the fact that often in, in a Bayesian model, we actually have it over over parameterized in some sense, which isn't really a problem in some in some sense because everything works out fine because we have our priors. So it might slow down the sampler quite significantly in some cases. And it also sometimes makes interpretation more difficult, I think. So then there was the idea, I mean, pretty similar to difference coding in, in the frequentist sense. Can't we say we have parameters that tell us not what the value is for each state, but a parameter that tells us how much does that state differ from the mean of all the states? And the, by mean, in this case, I mean the sample. Okay, for states, there's no no difference between the mean of all states and the sample mean of states, but let's ignore that difference for a moment. So there's, what's the difference to the mean of each individual state? So you could say we have a parameter that tells us that some state is, has a larger than average value, and you have another parameter that tells us it's lower than average. So if there were only two states, you could say, actually, we just say what's the difference between the states? So we define a new distribution that tells us both the values for both of them, but that distribution has one degree of freedom fewer because it just says, okay, it's required to sum to zero. So for two, one would then just be plus a value and the other would be minus that value. For three values, it's a bit more complicated then, but still works out similarly. And it turns out that you can then write the, an original model that's just intercept plus one parameter for each one state. parameter from from a normal distribution. You can take any normal distribution if you like and pull it into two parts: a zero-sum normal distribution and the sample mean distribution. So you could ask if you have fifty states, what's the distribution of the mean of those states, and what's the difference to the mean? And both of those distributions you can make sure if you write it down correctly, are normal distributions, so multivariate normal in this case then. And then you have intercept plus this sample mean distribution, but those two are just normal distributions, so you can combine them into one normal distribution without really changing the model, if you like, so you could adapt the standard deviation a bit of that parameter. So you can write hierarchical models like that as just using the zero-sum normal in a sense that it's just strictly a reparameterization to make a sample faster. Mm. But then I think if you do that, there are many cases where I think it actually makes more sense to look at the parameters of the zero-sum normal. So for the states, for instance, it doesn't really make sense to have a parameter for, so because the number of states is a fixed, it's a fixed set of states. 
And it doesn't really make sense to want to make predictions for new states coming in to the US in the future or something like that. So it's not a really infinite distribu distribution for an infinite number of states, but it's just a finite, finite set of states. And it makes sense to say, okay, the mean of those has to be zero. So sometimes I think, depending on the context, it also makes it much easier to interpret results then. If you just say, okay, how, how different is this state to the mean of all states? Yeah. Yeah, because then your reference is changing. It's not one category, it's the mean behavior of all the categories. So here it would be the mean of the states. And so, yeah, in a lot of cases, that makes more sense. First, to interpret the model is like, that helps you understand, oh yeah, okay, so Alaska is really below average, whereas I don't know, Massachusetts is way above. And also that means that it's not gonna, like the results are not gonna change because like you're not changing the the reference category. Whereas like if you're using classic reference encoding and then you change the pivot or the reference category, then your re your results are going to change. The parameters that the parameter values are going to change. And also you probably maybe you'll have to change the priors. Yeah, and, and not just the values change, but also their meaning might change. So you can, can yeah. really get different results, not just the same results written in a different way, but really something that's fundamentally different. Yeah. And so that's something that would be helpful to use. So anytime you do linear regression with categorical predictors, for instance, so that's what you're talking about. And also, as I was saying, multinomial regression, well, it's like trying to infer the latent probability of given number of categories. So here, that's the same. And so what I really love about that is that I do use quite a lot of multinomial models and, and before you had to do that pivot thing. And so imagine you have a multinomial regression and in the regression you have a categorical predictor. That means you have to do two pivots at some times, at some point. Yeah. And it's like, so, and, and you drop a dimension at each time you do a pivot. So it's like, you, you have to keep all of that in mind and in the code. And also you have to stack with a Sarah and it makes the code way more complicated. So in those cases, I would say if you really need to use classic reference encoding, then use Bambi if, if you're in Python, because Bambi will do that dropping and reference encoding for you, the pivoting. But then if you can use zero-sum normal, because it makes more sense to you, what I love is that you can actually write the multinomial regression like you would write the binomial regression, but it's just like instead of using pm.normal, you're going to use pm.zero-sum normal. And that's super cool. <laughs> it makes everything way easier. <laughs> so I think these are like, I would say the two main examples and I have to work on a notebook, Jupyter notebook example with Ben Vincent to go through these two examples of categorical regression, linear regression with categorical predictors and multinomial regression. So we'll get there, folks, at time of recording. We haven't, well, Ben has started that and Tommy Capretto, I just haven't looked at it at all. Yeah, there's definitely something there already. Also, I think it gets also a bit more interesting if you add interactions as well. Because the zero-sum normal implementation that we have now also can work in multiple dimensions. So you can say it needs to sum to zero if you sum across one axis and a second axis separately it needs to sum to zero or something. Yeah, which is really nice if you if you're working with interactions as well. Yeah, so it's like in your example, for instance, that that would be that common intercept 
then you have one parameter per state where you have a zero-sum normal that sums zero across states. Then you have one parameter per what could we use here in the example as a second categorical predictor? <laughs> that could be... H group. Yeah, that could be H group. Yeah, exactly. So then you have H groups, which are here are categories again. And so you have the main effect of H groups where you would use the zero-sum normal on, uh, on H this time. And then you could look at the interaction of H group and states. So that means another set of parameters. But here you would have to force the parameters on the interaction of age and state to be zero-sum normal, to be zero-sum across ages and states. And so that will be in the example <laughs> that I was talking about, folks, but that gives you a first idea of what that means. And yeah, the cool stuff is that the implementation we have in PyMC is that uh, you can just say pm.zero-sum normal and the usual stuff, so give a name, then your parameter, uh, your prior for sigma, and then you just say zero-sum x is equals two, and that means PyMC will understand you just like uh, what the two zero sum x is basically on the dimensions that you that you possess. Also, maybe you could mention a case where it might not make sense to use the zero sum normal. That might, yeah. for instance, be if you actually have a predictor where it makes sense to say this is we can draw an arbitrary number of elements from this. So it's not just a fixed finite set, yeah. but it's potentially infinite set. So I don't know patient or something. I mean, that's not mm -hmm. potentially infinite, but it's potentially very large. Yeah. So you could just draw new patients or get see new patients. And it doesn't really make sense to compare patients to the mean of the patients I have already seen. You then want to compare to the mean of all patients there are probably. Yeah. And then it makes sense that that's actually a parameter in the model. If that set is finite and fixed, then I think fixing it to something yeah. based on the mean of those makes more sense. Mm -hmm. And so if that set is not finite, so using zero-sum normal here, yeah, it's not the best idea. What would you use? Would you use like classic reference encoding? Uh, no, I think that would probably... I mean, you can use the zero-sum normal in the reparameterization sense that you just say, I just want to make the model faster, sample faster, so I use this, but I kind of work out in the end again what, what it would have been if I hadn't done that. But you can just use a pm.norm. Yes. Okay. Uh, I mean, that, that's over-parameterized in a sense, but I don't think there's really something wrong with that in that setting. Yeah. I mean, yeah, mathematically there isn't. But so the problem could be in the sampling. But if you can get away with sampling that works because, well, nuts is quite robust, especially if you use the NetBytes. <laughs> and so like then you could get away with a model that's over-parameterized, but actually just way easier to read and code and then to understand. And then if you want to make predictions on the new patient, for instance, well, you can still do it. Cool. Nice. Yeah, I love I love that distribution. It's really, it's really interesting. Because as you say, like, it's quite simple mathematically, but uh, like it still takes a bit of time to understand how it behaves and, and how useful and when it is useful. I think it's definitely kind of a variation of well-understood things. So kind of difference mm -hmm. coding and dropping columns in, in linear regressions, all that definitely isn't new. That has been yeah. around, I don't know how long, long. Yeah, for sure. but I think this is kind of a new take. I think new, I, new in the sense that I haven't seen it before, let's put it like that, but new take mm -hmm. on, on that. And I think yeah. a useful way of looking at it. Okay, time is flying by and um, I still have a few questions for you. So <laughs> actually when, like, when I'd like to ask you is a bit like more general, 
I don't know if you have an answer about that, but what do you think the biggest hurdles right now in the Bayesian workflow? Is there something you think like would be very, very neat to have improved in the workflow? That's a good question. So I think figuring out sensitivity to some choices, for instance, is definitely would definitely be on a list of important things to look at. So in any model I have ever written, I just put in numbers at some point somewhere. For price. For priors, for instance. I mean, numbers for a standard deviation or of which distribution do I choose? And mm -hmm. in many cases, it's hard to really investigate all of them and really carefully think about all of those. And in a small model, you can definitely do that and um, kind of try to get a feel for how which ones are important. Mm. And often some of those priors really just don't, don't matter at all. So whether you have, if you have a large data set, whether you put a half normal prior with a standard deviation of five or 2.5 on your final sigma, that, that, that might just not make any, any measurable difference after sampling. So it's kind of, Yeah, but figuring out which of those things that you put in and think, eh, they're probably not, they're not, not going to matter, actually do matter. That I think is, is an important point. So it would be great, for instance, I don't know if that's kind of the, the best way of doing that, would be if we could mark things that we think, okay, they might, I, that, that is a somewhat arbitrary choice and I put in a number, but I can, could kind of mark that, okay, this is one that could I could have chosen differently and wouldn't really know the difference. Yeah. So that you could mark those in a model by using, I don't know, PM dot hyperparameter or I don't, something. And then automatically have some method that tells you which of those are actually important. Mm -hmm. So either by resampling or by looking at gradients, trying to yeah, do sensitivity analysis in some sense of how, how does the posterior depend on those choices that I make there mm -hmm. and have that semi-automated at least so that I can easily, more easily get, get a hold of which are the important things, which priors do I actually need to think about and which ones are just, yeah, who cares? doesn't make a difference. Yeah, yeah that'd be cool for sure. There's definitely also something that, yeah, I agree is, is hard to to handle on a like in on a principled yeah. in a principled way yeah like definitely and I mean it ties back to what we were talking about at the beginning about how do you choose the sigmas for any given individual parameter right whereas it makes way more sense often to just say okay that's the the amount of variation I expect from that whole phenomenon and how like here is how I think it is distributed among the parameters but I don't know in exact fact. Then another thing that I think is important for most, mostly for highly nonlinear models, let's say you have something with an ODE, this is something my wife actually does at the university uh, in her postdoc, where it comes up a lot that if you have an ODE and you you don't really know think that this ODE exactly describes the data generating process, mm -hmm. how can you put error models in there? So that, I mean, the, the whole setting where I don't actually think my model is the model and something else is going on. Mm -hmm. And that, then you kind of have this, okay, the, the Bayesian statistics will just assume that the model you specify is exactly the right model and give you your exact perfect answers for that model. But if that's wrong, 
then yeah, well, what does the output mean? And de definitely in highly nonlinear models, you can easily see example where this just goes horribly wrong. And it's really hard to fix. So the question, how can we get uncertainty of more complicated processes in the model, how exactly they, they work and make, make the uncertainty estimations more robust to, to changes to the model. Mm. That, that's more of something where, yeah, I'm not actually sure how to approach that, to be honest. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's a whole that reminds me, I think, of the software-assisted Bayesian workflow, you know, that Akivetari and Paul Birkner are working on and, and talked about in, in this podcast. And I mean, it's a very active area of research. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, posterior predictive checking definitely is, is an important thing there where you can then easily notice that something is wrong at least. Yeah. But that, that doesn't necessarily make it that easy to fix. So No, um, no, no, for sure, for sure. And yeah, for the record, I think that PM.careful is a really good name for that kind of automated flight <laughs> you're talking about. <laughs> That'd be cool. I'd like to use PM that careful. <laughs> uh, okay, well, so before asking you the last two questions, I'm actually wondering, like, kind of a fun question, but is there a method or type of models that you particularly like and uh, you would like to tell us about here? Ah, I don't know. Actually, just plain old linear regressions. I think they're kind of, they're, family of models that seems really simple and easy to understand, but actually is pretty, I mean, generalized linear models, I guess. So the more general version is surprisingly useful, unreasonably useful, I think. So it's really looks simple, seems like you could learn that pretty quickly, but actually learning all the details and making sure you can actually use it for different settings is, is really tricky. And yeah. I think that's yeah, just in general an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I I really love generalized linear regressions. I I mean that kind of like you know the the illustration of the Pareto principle in in statistics. <laughs> you know, it's like just it's like it, it sounds like twenty percent of of models, but you get eighty percent of the results thanks to those. It's it's really cool. And also, yeah. kind of uh, most most things I model seem to kind of be. Okay, just a regression with some twist in it. Somewhere there's there's often a twist where it's not the, the standard linear regression thing. Yeah. Other than that twist, it's still kind of a really, really useful building block that you can really do a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. It's like, you know, a traditional re cooking recipe that it's like each time you make it, it's like, yeah, that, that stuff that is works. good. <laughs> like, like pizza, you know? It's like, yeah, pizza works. Like yeah, most of definitely. the time, you know, just love it. Uh, you try to do other stuff and so on, you fancy fusion stuff in Michelin star restaurant, but yeah, just pizza will get you a long way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Linear models, the pizza of statistics. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Should be, it, it could be, yeah. So I was <laughs> recording an episode the other day and I was like, with uh, next fighter pilot, of the Canadian Army, and your episode's gonna air before that. So that's like for listeners, it's actually a teaser. <laughs> and I realized that I mean, it would be so cool to have a movie about Bayesian statistics, right? Like it would make it 
it to make it so sexy. So like definitely we need a movie about basic stats and that should be the name of the movie probably. Linear <laughs> regression is the pizza of statistics. <laughs> Such a bad name. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Which projects are you most excited about for the coming month? Do you have anything right now you're working on and are super excited about? Yeah, that would be NatPy, I think. And just in general, the, the mass matrix adaptation changes and kind of, I, I also kind of like the mathematical framework that I came up for that, which mm -hmm. horribly slowed with writing down properly, which I just, yeah. Anyway, yeah. but I'm really, really excited about that. I think that was a lot of fun to work on. And Cool. Happy to hear that. And again, I can hear, <laughs> can hear the excitement. And uh, okay, so before letting you go, though, I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. So uh, first one, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Yeah, probably, I mean, getting the... Best matrix adaptation? Yeah, getting the samplers more robust. I, think that, <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I, that, that, that's probably it, yeah. <laughs> Uh, that, I love that answer. You're definitely the first one to say that. <laughs> so now I, I guess it shows that I don't actually listen to your podcast that often because I don't really know what most people answer there. <laughs> Sorry about that. I guess uh, I'll good. catching up that, to do. <laughs> that's good. That means you were you were not anchored at all. So that that's perfect. That's a really true independent sample here. Like no autocorrelation with the rest of the samples. I mean, problem within statistics. That that that's how I was answering that. Not kind of yeah. worldwide problem. I think then I might have other priorities to be honest. Okay, okay. I see, <laughs> I see what you did here. That's not gonna fly, but I see what you're trying to. <laughs> so, second question: If you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? That's also a hard question. As someone like Euclid would be actually pretty interesting, assuming. There's no language barrier because otherwise I'll definitely go for somebody German or English or British or whatever. Yeah, I think that would be interesting to just, I mean, I, I don't know if he was actually a nice guy. Don't think we actually know that much about him yeah. personally. Yeah, I don't But think we do. kind of to have this axioma axiomatic way of thinking about mathematics 2000 or something like 2000 years ago, that I think is actually really fascinating. And it would might be fun to kind of, figure out how he thinks about how math developed, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also kind of in general, I, I guess I like antiquity, interesting yeah. period. So even mm -hmm. apart from math and science and stuff, there might be things to ask. Yeah, for sure. That must be fun. And the cool thing is that if he turns out to be a jerk, well, probably after the dinner, he would probably die because of all the germs that you gave him and that he has no immunity against yet. Hopefully it goes that direction. I'm not entirely sure, but... Uh. Yeah, true. <laughs> oh, true. Yeah. I mean, it's more probable that it goes that direction than the other. But yeah, you never know. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> Vielen Dank, uh, Adrian. I, I would have like so many more questions, but um, it's already been a long time, so let's, let's call it a show. And as usual, I put resources and a link to your different projects in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again, Adrian, for taking the time and being on this show. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. This has been another episode of Earning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com.
Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learn Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good busy and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good busy and change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making, let's get them on a solid foundation.